Here's Jackson on first down. And how about another? Marquise Brown, 18-yard touchdown strike again from Jackson. 45 to 6. Who did we learn more about last night? The Ravens or the Rams? It is the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along this Tuesday afternoon. Week 12 of the NFL season in the books. And what a game last night for Lamar Jackson, who in about a year's time has gone from a question mark to an exclamation point. It is a two-man race for the MVP award this year, but there is a clear-cut favorite. Despite what happened last night with Lamar Jackson, despite his heroics, did we learn more about the Ravens or the Rams? This was a Rams team that made the Super Bowl a year ago and since then just haven't looked quite right. Sean McVay, has he lost his edge? He did in the Super Bowl. He admitted to that. He owned up to it. And now the Rams are on the verge of not even making the postseason. They get embarrassed last night by a Ravens offense that we have to start talking about as a Super Bowl contender. That offensive line, Stanley, Yanda, and company, they're talked about as the best in the league, as they should be. They are among the best offensive lines in the league. So much so that we're going to get into the stat of the day here two minutes into the show. Last night, during the Ravens' 48 rushing attempts, they only failed to gain positive yardage on three of those 48 rushing plays. Those three were the three kneel downs at the end that Robert Griffin III took when they were in victory formation. The only time the Ravens ran the football and didn't gain positive yardage was when they kneeled at the end of the game. Those three kneel downs to run out the clock. This is a Ravens team that absolutely needs to be talked about as a Super Bowl contender. We're all hyped yesterday to see Aaron Donald and that Rams defensive line, that vaunted defensive line that had been the bread and butter for the Rams over the last couple of seasons now, really came into fruition last year during their Super Bowl run. We're excited to see them and how they match up with Lamar Jackson, who right now looks like the player that coaches spend the most time preparing for and the one that you least want to see. I'm already looking forward to this Sunday, 49ers, Ravens, Inject that into my veins. But let's talk about what happened last night. Because the Ravens and John Harbaugh continued their push to get back to the Super Bowl. I'm off the Frank Reich for Coach of the Year train. John Gruden has lost a little bit of momentum. He's lost a little steam. He's still in the race, though. But John Harbaugh, to me, has got to be the favorite in the AFC. Kyle Shanahan, Sean Payton, maybe even Pete Carroll could all be thrown in there in the NFC. But the AFC, to me, John Harbaugh, with the job that he's done, adjusting an offense in which his quarterback is comfortable, and that front office building the right team around Lamar Jackson. Tight ends, good running game, a great offensive line. To me, the Ravens have to be the front runners for coach of the year and front office of the year. Let's update our pick'em standings while we have a moment. We are 12 weeks into the year. 
I am 40 and 20. I picked Houston on Thursday night football. They beat Indianapolis. We all picked New Orleans. I did pick Jacksonville. That was incorrect. I did pick San Fran and Baltimore. So I went 4 and 1 in the week. Jake Duran is two games back. He's at 38 and 22. Ryan Stieg is also 38 and 22. Tyree Smith, 35 and 25. And John Michael Hoefling is 33 and 27. How about the real standings? It's going to affect your lives. The real NFL standings with five weeks to go. We've got five weeks left until the playoffs. Well, you look at the AFC, New England, Baltimore, Houston, and Kansas City all lead their divisions. The wild card race, you've got Buffalo sitting at 8-3. and three. Buffalo, as a wild card team, has a better record than two division leaders. Houston at 7-4 and four, and Kansas City at 7-4. and four. You throw in the Steelers in that second wild card spot as it is right now. Somehow they're six and five. Oakland is six and five. Indy six and five. Tennessee is six and five. I still think it's very realistic that all those teams have a path to getting into the postseason. You've got Cleveland at five and six. There's a chance. They don't have a tough schedule. They got a really soft schedule here in the last five weeks. I just think they're in too deep of a hole. I really do. Jacksonville, 4-7. and seven. Chargers, 4-7. and seven. I mean, maybe if they win out, they're both going to have to win out. The Jets are at 4-7. and seven. They're not going to win out. How about the NFC? The division leaders are San Fran, New Orleans, Green Bay, and Dallas. The wild card teams, Seattle at 9-2, and two, Minnesota at 8-3. and three. See, I think the playoff picture is set. I think the wild card teams will change, but I think those six teams will make the postseason. You got the Rams at six and five. They'll be the first team on the outside looking in. Chicago five and six. Philadelphia five and six. The Panthers five and six. Everybody else four and seven or worse. The only team that has a shot outside of LA would be Philadelphia, just for the fact that they play in the NFC East. Philadelphia at five and six, only one game out. One game behind Dallas. Eight and eight could very well win that division. It probably will win that division. But the Rams just aren't going to the playoffs. As good as the Ravens were last night, and as big of a spectacle as that was, we might have learned more about the Rams last night than we did about the Baltimore Ravens. We know what Lamar Jackson brings to the table. He continues to raise the bar. He continues to amaze us more every single week. But we know he's capable of stuff like that. We know what he's capable of. The Rams are a team one year removed from the Super Bowl with a head coach that was billed as this genius. And I'm sure he still is. Uh, he knows how to call plays. But is he managing a locker room well? Sean McVay was one of those coaches where if you had a cup of coffee with him for five minutes, then you had a job. And now they're a team that's on the verge of missing the playoffs one year after going all-in, signing a bunch of short-term contracts to go to a Super Bowl. They did. Their offense, supposed to be their strength, didn't come through. And Sean McVay got outcoached by somebody on his own staff, Wade Phillips. He came to coach in that Super Bowl. Sean McVay didn't. And McVay owned up to it afterwards. But it hasn't gotten better this season. The Rams are reaping what they sowed. All those one-year contracts are coming back to bite them. The Jared Goff contract is coming back to bite them. Arguably, the Todd Gurley contract 
is biting them a little bit. I think we learn more about the Rams and how mismanaged they were these last couple of years going all in for a Super Bowl when you didn't have the quarterback, you didn't have maybe a few pieces at wide receiver. Keep in mind, Cooper Cup was out during their Super Bowl run last year. Now, they had a good team last year. They really did. But was it worth selling your future? Was it worth having who I still believe is one of the best offensive minds in football as your head coach and being tied to Jared Goff for the next few years, for the next foreseeable future? You think the Rams would take a do-over if they could on that Jared Goff contract? As big of a show as Lamar Jackson put on last night, I think we might have learned more about the Rams than we did about the Ravens. And if you're a Rams fan, what we learned was not good. We learned that you're not going to make the playoffs this year. And we learned that you may not next year or anytime soon. Because Seattle doesn't look like they're slowing down anytime soon. San Fran doesn't look like they're slowing down anytime soon. For the near future, for the foreseeable future, you've got two teams in your division that are going to be better than you. Maybe a team that's up and coming in Arizona. A team with Kyler Murray and Cliff Kingsbury. Two guys that are versatile, smart, offensively gifted. And you're still stuck with Jared Goff. You look at the quarterbacks in that division. You've got Russell Wilson head and shoulders above everybody else. And then Kyler Murray's probably number two. Jimmy G some days. And then you have Jared Goff way off in the distance. Plus, you've got your other one-year contracts, your short-term guys that are going to be on expiring deals. And the guys that you locked yourself into, the guys that you married yourself to the long term with, are Jared Goff and a running back who's struggling with arthritis in his knee in his mid-20s. Those are your long-term guys. And this has been brewing for many months now, going back to last year. Do you remember NFC and AFC Championship Week? I did a segment with the final four teams, the Chiefs, the Patriots, the Rams, and the Saints. I did a segment on which team is set up best and worst for the future. Now, the popular answer, everybody wanted to say, well, the Patriots are probably the team that's set up worse for the future. Gronk might retire. He did. Tom Brady might retire. He didn't. Bill Belichick might even retire. He didn't. No, it was never the Patriots. The Patriots were never a team that was in danger for their future. I said it back then, and I say it now. It is the L.A. Rams. You are hard-pressed to find a team that is set up worse for the future in all the NFL than the L.A. Rams. You know, even the Miami Dolphins, they're a team with all kinds of draft stock, draft capital built up over these last few years. Now, that doesn't guarantee anything. Doesn't matter if you don't hit on the picks. Doesn't matter how much draft capital you have stored up. But at least they have a reason to be optimistic. What do the Rams have to hope for? The Rams aren't even in tanking mode. The Rams are in 500 mode. 6-5, and 5-6. Five, five and six. They're right around that neighborhood. They're 6-5. and five. They're not going to be tanking. They're going to be picking about the mid-roads of the draft. 
They're going to be picking 14th, 15th, 16th, something like that. They don't have the option to trade. They don't have draft capital left. You can easily make the argument the Rams are in a worse spot going forward than a team like the Miami Dolphins, a team that was historically bad for the first half of the season. They're picking up a little bit. But you can easily make the case the Dolphins are more optimistic and have more reason to be optimistic than a team that was in the Super Bowl as recently as last year. Let's take our first time out. I've got a guest who's going to join me in the ESPN-UP phone line on the other side. We're going to talk Canadian football because the 107th Grey Cup awarded and it snaps an 18-year drought. Next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back to the Sports Pen on ESPN-UP. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along. Sunday night, the 107th Annual Grey Cup was awarded to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. They win the CFL title, and we're joined by a friend of the show, John Hodge. He's on ESPN-UP phone line from Winnipeg, Manitoba, north of the border. John, I appreciate you being on with us. Cover the Bombers regularly. Congratulations to you and the city on your title. Thanks, Tanner. You know, this is uh, a day unlike any other in the last 29 years in Winnipeg in the province of Manitoba. Um, I'm actually just turning 29 in a few weeks. I was born six weeks after the Bombers' most recent Grey Cup victory, uh, part of a generation of uh, Manitobans who had never witnessed uh, or, or at least couldn't remember uh, their team winning a Grey Cup um, and that all changed when the Winnipeg Blue Bombers defeated the Hamilton Tiger Cats in Calgary by a score of 33-12. to It was a shocking upset, and it, not one that I saw coming. I don't think many people saw coming, but just an unbelievable postseason in Winnipeg and the elation in Manitoba. It, it's hard to put into words. The, the emotions for a lot of people have been all over social media, friends, family members, you know, people reaching out to each other online. It's it's just been a beautiful, beautiful uh, past 24 hours here and uh, certainly long overdue for the, the folks here in the province of Manitoba. John, let's be real here for a minute. Did you have any idea when this season started that the Blue Bombers could be this successful? Or what kind of expectations did you have for the team going into this season? You know, I, I think the Bombers, certainly had a shot. I actually picked them to be in the Grey Cup game back in the preseason. I did pick them to win the West, but I didn't think they would win the game. Um, it's just a ceiling that they haven't been able to break through. They they played in five different Grey Cup games, for the record. Uh, 92, 93, 2001, 2011, and uh, 2007. Five times between uh, 1990, their most recent championship, and now... Um, but halfway through the season, I think a lot of people were in a position to write them off when they lost their starting quarterback. Matt Nichols uh, suffered a season-ending shoulder injury that required surgery. Uh, Chris Strebler, the backup, came in. And, you know, Chris Strebler is a fantastic kind of throwback quarterback. He can run like a gazelle. He was actually converted to tight end when he played uh, at the University of Minnesota. And then as a grad transfer switch back to playing quarterback at the University of South Dakota. He is a uh, spectacular athlete, but struggled somewhat in the starter's role. Um, 
but the Bombers were able to put it together when they acquired Zach Caleros uh, at the trade deadline in October. And Zach Caleros, for just some background to your listeners, is a guy who uh, had, has been with a few different teams in recent years, has had a ton of concussion problems, was, was once almost a league MOP, uh, but uh, as of late, you know, he took a headshot week one this year uh, with, with Saskatchewan, and there was even speculation he wasn't going to play after that, and his career was done. So the fact that you know, there's a lot of highs and lows this season in Winnipeg, from the outset I would have said yes. Middle of the season I would have said no. Trade deadline, it's like, okay, we'll see where this is going. And sure enough, the roller coaster finished off with uh, a high mark at the end of the year with, uh, with the championship. John, how about the team's defense allowing 13, 14, 12 points in the three playoff games? Well, the Bombers, I just read the stat this morning. It's an unbelievable statistic. The Bombers uh, beat three teams, as you said, to get to the Grey Cup. First Calgary, then Saskatchewan, then Hamilton. And, and all of those games on the road, by the way, combined those three teams had 40 wins in the regular season, which ties the record for strength of opponent in the playoffs in Grey Cup history. Um, just shocking results. The Bombers had a good defense all season, don't get me wrong. They had a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a bend-but-don't-break unit, a unit that would give up a lot of yardage, but a unit that was good at tightening up in the red zone, and a unit that was really good at turning the football over. The Bombers led the CFL in takeaways uh, in 2018, were one of the best teams at taking the ball away in 2019. and the, I mean, there were a lot of stars on defense, but the one I'll, I'll highlight is Willie Jefferson. Willie Jefferson attended the University of Oregon, uh, ended up getting in some trouble alongside teammate Josh Gordon. From there, went to Stephen F. Austin and has bounced around a little bit in the CFL, basically, you know, going wherever he could to be uh, a feature pass rusher. Has had NFL opportunities as well. And, at six foot seven, two hundred fifty pounds, he's one of the players in the CFL who just makes me scratch my head why he's not in the NFL. There's no explanation for it. He's got the size, the quickness, the speed, everything. But uh, he's playing in the CFL, and he had three sacks yesterday, two forced fumbles for Winnipeg. He played like a man possessed, and uh, that was, you know, one of those championship performances that I think will live on in the memory of the Grey Cup forever. You know, uh, Willie Jefferson playing out of his mind and uh, leading that defense to a a historic performance as you laid it out. The Bombers, three games on the playoffs against three teams that all finished 12-6 and or better in the regular season. And on the road, they allow, you know, less than 40 points, three games combined, in a a league where uh, there are a lot of points scored. Just unbelievable performance from that unit. John, what's the city been like here in these last couple of days? How's the city been celebrating? Well, the Bombers landed in Winnipeg at 3 p.m. Central Time, um, and there were a 1,000 fans at the airport to welcome them there. There were some speeches made. The military band was there uh, playing uh, some tunes. Just a fantastic atmosphere. Uh, there's one of the one of the oldest intersections in western Canada is Portage and Maine. It's downtown Winnipeg. Um, anybody who's been to Winnipeg uh, should know Portage and Maine. It's often called the windiest intersection um, probably in, on the planet, to be honest. Um, and, and I can attest, it, it probably is. Uh, but the game finished at about 9 p.m. local time, and uh, by 10 o'clock there were people congregating in the middle of the intersection, which 
in my lifetime, the only time I can remember that happening is when the Winnipeg Jets were announced to be moving back to the city from Atlanta, where they were the Thrashers in 2011. Um, so fans have been celebrating, you know, since last night. I would imagine some people kept the party going right until the sun started coming back up. But uh, whether it's at the airports, whether it's at Portage in Maine, in the privacy of their own homes, people have been going nuts. And tomorrow the Bombers have announced the parade will start at noon uh, in the city, and that's going to bring out thousands more people, I'm sure, all of whom have been waiting an exorbitantly long time to uh, to celebrate this type of achievement from their football team. We're talking with John Hodge. He's the host of Three Down Nation podcast, CFL Insider. John, I wanted to ask you about Chris Matthew, the Winnipeg superfan who said that he would not wear pants until the Bombers won another Grey Cup. He made that promise to himself 18 years ago. He can wear shorts. He couldn't wear pants during that time, and as we know, it gets cold up there. Any further details to that story you can relay? Well, it's an amazing story. In in 2001, the Bombers were, by and large, you know, a, a pretty runaway favorite to win the Grey Cup. They had the, the MOP, uh, Kahari Jones at quarterback. They finished the season 14-4 and four and could have easily finished 16-2 and two had they not decided to rest a ton of starters down the stretch. But unfortunately, they, they hit a brick wall in the Grey Cup and lost to uh, a Calgary team that actually finished the year below 500. They, they were 8-10. and 10. You know, weak division, just barely scraped in as the bottom seed and caught fire. And like Winnipeg did this season, won three games in a row, boom, champions. And uh, so Matthew, you know, after declaring a few weeks before that game, I'm not going to wear pants so the Bombers win the Great Cup. Turns out it didn't happen in 2001, also didn't happen in 2002. By 2004, the team was on a decline and it, it obviously has been a long time in a very cold climate, I might add, <laughs> that Chris Matthew has gone without pants. And he did say in some interviews he'll wear long johns and then shorts over top if he's out shoveling snow. But even in, you know, minus 20 degree Fahrenheit weather, minus 30 degree Fahrenheit, minus 40 degree Fahrenheit, he'll be outside in shorts. And uh, last night he was in Calgary on the sideline and he put on pants after the cup was awarded to a, a, a cheer from the crowd, though I will say he has gone on the record as saying he's such a shorts guy at this point. He sees himself probably wearing shorts or what wearing pants for one day after the cup, but and he said he'll go back to wearing shorts. John, I wanted to ask you about the offseason for Winnipeg because they've got quite a few roster moves that need to be made, including at the quarterback position. Who are you expecting them to bring back? Who maybe could be let go? And who maybe could be somebody that's brought in from the outside? Well, the first uh, first order of business is, is getting Mike O'Shea under contract. Mike O'Shea is the head coach of the Blue Bombers. He's the longest-tenured coach in the CFL. Uh, this was his sixth year in Winnipeg. If he's back, I think that allows you to start making some personnel decisions. And I've got the Bombers' whole free agent list up on 3downnation.com if your listeners want to check it out. But you're absolutely right. The quarterback spot is a sore one for Winnipeg. All three of the quarterbacks um, with, with real CFL experience that they have under contract right now are pending free agents. I think the biggest decision is if you want to bring back Zach Caleros, a guy who started four games, including three postseason games, won them all for you but again earlier this year at the age of 31 
suffered another head injury that had people saying, you know what, this guy is done. Um, you know, relying on a guy like that for a postseason run is one thing. Relying on him for a full 18-game regular season schedule is is quite another. Um, so the quarterback spot is uh, is one. The, the the only guy I would say who's going to hit the open market potentially as a real upgraded quarterback would be Jeremiah Mazzoli, who is the East Division MOP candidate in 2018. Tore his ACL in Hamilton uh, in July, but is currently a pending free agent. If he hits the market, he'll get attention from a lot of teams. But other than him, I think the Bombers' best or, uh, best option at quarterback will be in-house, be it a Zach Caleros, be it uh, Matt Nichols, uh, or even Chris Streveler, who, as I said off the top, is uh, – is a truly remarkable athlete. Well, you talk about the coaching staff, John, and Richie Hull, the defensive coordinator for the Bombers. It's amazing what he was able to do midseason to help get that defense on track. What did you see from him? What adjustments did he make? Well, one thing that we saw a lot of that we had a whole lot through the, through the beginning of the year was a three-man front. The Bombers have, as I said, Willie Jefferson, also Jackson Jeffcoat, uh, son of a, a two-time Super Bowl-winning uh, defensive lineman um, with, uh, I believe it was the Dallas Cowboys, so that's that's before my time. Uh, I think his name, dad's name is Jim Jeffcoat. Don't quote me on that, though. A lot of your listeners will know, I'm sure. Uh, but Jackson Jeffcoat on the other side. Uh, they also have Jonathan Congo, who was a, a stud with the Tennessee Volunteers, uh, going to school, Canadian kid from Surrey, British Columbia. Um, you know, they, they had a lot of three down linemen sets and oftentimes would put Jefferson in the middle at nose and let the ends go crazy. And if you're putting down three pass rushers who can all get after it, who aren't, you know, 325 pounders, they're, they're, they're 250, 260 pounders who can move and really get after the quarterback. Well, then you've got nine players who are able to sit back and, uh, and, and cover opposing receivers some in man concepts, some in zone concepts. And Dane Evans, the uh, the Hamilton Tiger Cats quarterback, in uh, starting their last uh, 11 games this year after Mazzoli tore his ACL, is still in his first year as a starter, only 25 years old, a product of Tulsa University. And, uh, you know, a, a guy who, while still very successful this year, he went 9-2 and two as a starter, won the, uh, the East final against Edmonton to get to the Grey Cup, just looked confused and frustrated at times. He took a lot of hits, especially early, and that seemed to rattle him. It seemed to get him off his rhythm, maybe more so than you'd see from a veteran quarterback. So I think for Dane Evans, he's going to be a very good quarterback in the CFL. But Richie Hall certainly uh, uh, dialing up some interesting looks that confused him. And one more thing, Richie Hall actually was away from the team for a few weeks this year in late September, and it was later revealed that his, his brother had passed away uh, at a relatively young age in his in his 50s in the States. And so, you know, the fact that he was away from the team for a while and carried on with such a heavy heart, having that season culminate in a great cup championship, just remarkable. I don't know what more you can say about it. Um, deserves all the credit in the world for, for obviously what he accomplished on the field, but, but also, you know, doing it with... Uh, with such a somber tone, I think, uh, following the passing of, uh, of his brother. Hey, John, last thing before I let you go. You've been on the show here before, and you've talked about what the CFL means to Canada. You said something to the extent of hockey is Canada's game, 
but the CFL is Canada's league. And for those of my listeners who missed you when you were on the show earlier, tell me about what the CFL means to Canada and how it's been able to survive and not only that, but thrive throughout the last few decades. Well, the CFL, I think in many ways, and, and the Great Cup is, is, is a national event that I think celebrates the CFL better than any other. Um, in many ways, it's the anti-Super Bowl. And what I mean by that isn't that the Super Bowl is bad. Of course, the, C- the Super Bowl is amazing and a spectacle. But while the Super Bowl is, you know, an event kind of bought, paid, and sold for, or, uh, and, and filled with, you know, uh, people who, who won promotions or, or people who, you know, got tickets through a vendor, the Great Cup is about fans. There were almost 40,000 people in the stadium, and they're all fans, people who, who love the league, um, who have traveled from across the country to be there, and uh, it's not as corporate. I don't think it's not as uh, maybe stale. And it's it's much more about the fans than anything else. Um, that said, people I know for of course Super Bowl get together for you know big parties of family and with friends, and you you know you fire up the barbecue, which obviously Canadians do as well. But you know people come from coast to coast to this event. There was even you know a, a, a constituent uh, group from way out east in Halifax where the CFL is hoping hoping to put a 10th team. They don't even have a team yet. It's a proposed franchise that's not off the ground, and yet there are people there in Atlantic Schooners gear, which is the proposed name for still the uh, yet-to-be-confirmed team, and that's something that I think is so special. Obviously, people like to, uh, you know, jabber back and forth and poke fun at other franchises, but at the end of the day, you walk through parties, you walk through hotel rooms, you walk through whatever, and there's, you know, Eskimo fans talking to Rough Rider fans and BC Lions fans having a beer with Montreal Alouettes fans and, you know, big groups of people who have gotten to know each other over 20 years of attending Grey Cup who maybe only see each other at that event once a year, living, you know, 1,500 miles away from each other. But Grey Cup is, is their time, and it's so special. People love the league, and... It's the only way a league that only has nine teams can thrive if everybody's passionate about the league just as much as they're passionate about their team. And Grey Cup illustrates that, I think, in just such a wonderful way as, a, as an event that is, you know, in many ways by the fans, for the fans. It's, it's a very special time, I think, for, for a lot of Canadians. He's CFL insider John Hodge, also host of the Three Down Nation podcast. Kind enough to give us some time here on ESPN-UP. Really appreciate it, John. That was fascinating. Congrats to you and the city of Winnipeg on your title, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Hope to have you on again sometime soon. Cheers, Tanner. Anytime. Let's take a time out. We'll talk college football playoff next on ESPN-UP. Check out the UP's live and local sports talk show, The Sports Pen. Weekday afternoons at 4 on ESPN-UP and on the ESPN-UP app. Welcome back, Tanner Hoops with you. Glad you're along. Here's your Sports Center update. Calgary Flames head coach Bill Peters has been accused of using racial language toward a former player. Akeem Alou, who was born in Nigeria, issued two tweets last night accusing Peters of calling him the N-word on multiple occasions when both were with the Rockford Ice Hogs. Peters was not made available to the media following last night's loss against Pittsburgh. Veteran free agent pitcher Rich Hill underwent successful surgery for his elbow to address lingering symptoms following his 2011 Tommy John. Hill will not be available to pitch until midseason this year, but says he does plan to play. And finally, the word almost is the longest word in the English language in which all the letters appear in alphabetical order. 
That is your Sports Center update. Glad to have you along once again this Tuesday afternoon. No press conference in Northern today. We're giving the coaches a little bit of a holiday break, some time to relax, recuperate, and what have you. So this is what I have for the back end of the show. We got to talk about the Cowboys, some comments made by Jerry Jones, and then what the NFL said to the Cowboys today. There is a presidential candidate who is taking on Rob Manfred, who took a shot at the commissioner of baseball. We're going to get to that. Plus, I'm going to give you my quarterback rankings. Twelve weeks into the year, who is the top quarterback in football thus far? I'm going to do even better than that. I'm going to give you a list. Maybe not a full list. We'll see how far we go. And I'm going to tell you why, of course. we got all that and more coming up, but right now, I want to look to college football because a lot transpired this weekend and the new college football playoff rankings come out tonight i'm going to tell you what the top 10 should look like what i believe the top 10 should look like i don't think it will look like this but i think it should look like this when the new rankings come out tonight number one Once again, the top-ranked team in the country will be the LSU Tigers. They did nothing to hurt their positioning this weekend. A 56-20 triumph over Arkansas. Now they get tested with Texas A&M this weekend. But Joe Burrow is looking like he may be the new front-runner, not only for the Heisman, but to be the number one pick in this year's draft. LSU clicking on all cylinders right now. Based on their body work, their resume, they're giving us no reason to think that they're not the number one team in the land. Number two. Based on the resume and body of work, LSU is the top-ranked team in the country, but maybe the best team in the country, in terms of the eye test, which again I hate, is Ohio State, who comes in at number two. I gotta go with the resume and the body of work here. Ohio State just beat Penn State 28-17, a game where they looked kinda shaky. That being said, they still picked up a top ten win by double digits while looking shaky. So Ohio State right now is the number two ranked team in the country. Number three. The Clemson Tigers hold at the number three spot. They're coming off a bye week. You don't like to see that this late in the year. But the last time we saw Clemson, they thumped a Wake Forest team that's better than what a lot of people want to admit. They thumped them 52-3. to This is a Clemson team that, yes, they won shakily against North Carolina, but they've turned a corner. They've played really good football since then. No other team is ranked in the top five in both offense and defense. Their strength of schedule, though, continues to be a big reason why. They're a team that hasn't beat anybody in the current top 25. Meanwhile, teams behind them are racking up current top 25 wins. As long as Clemson wins out, they're probably going to be fine, but they can't afford any mistake. And maybe they can't afford to win shakily again like they did against Carolina. Number four. In the four spot, I'm putting the Georgia Bulldogs. They now have three wins over teams in the current top 25, Florida, Notre Dame, and Auburn. Now, Auburn just lost this weekend. It's their third loss. And again, they don't have any bad losses. They've got a few good wins to their credit. But they have a chance against Alabama this weekend in the Iron Bowl. And if Alabama loses to Auburn, who lost to Georgia, then Georgia should solidify themselves as the four-team in the country. I know they lost to South Carolina, but they've got those three top 25 wins, including two in the top 10. I think that's enough for me and for the committee to look past the Carolina loss. As bad as it was, I think we can finally put that in the rearview mirror. Number five. 
I have Alabama at number five this week. I'm not penalizing them for losing to a Tungavailoa, and I hope the committee doesn't either. I don't believe in penalizing Alabama because they could struggle with a backup quarterback. I know you want to get the four best teams in, but we've seen very little of Mac Jones. I want to see him with Nick Saban's system as the guy, knowing that he's not going to lose his job when Tua comes back for the LSU game, but knowing this is the guy that's going to get us into the college football playoff. Or can he be the guy that gets us into the college football playoff? Alabama's behind Georgia because of their zero wins against top 25 teams. Alabama has beaten nobody that's currently in the top 25. They're coming off a dominant win over West Carolina, but you don't deserve to move up in the polls when you have no wins against ranked teams in your schedule in West Carolina in late November. I don't care how much you beat them by. Number six. This is going to be my biggest surprise. This is the one that might shock some people, but I'm going to put Minnesota in the number six spot at 10 and one. The reason being, who else should be there? Give me someone with a better resume than Minnesota. Tell me why Minnesota shouldn't be ranked ahead of Utah, of Oklahoma, of the other top one-loss teams. Look who they beat. Who's each of their best wins? For Minnesota, it's Penn State. That's better than Oklahoma's best win, Baylor, or Utah's best win, which is maybe Washington. Did you know Utah hasn't beaten anybody better than 5-4 and four this year. There's no win on Utah's resume whose record is greater than 5-4. and four. Who has the worst loss of the three? Well, it's not Minnesota. They lost on the road to a ranked Iowa team. Oklahoma lost to a four-loss Kansas State team. And Utah lost to a four-loss USC team who's ranked lower than Iowa. To me, the Gophers should be ahead of both Utah and Oklahoma. Give me a reason why the Gophers shouldn't be at number six. Number seven. For me, number seven came down to Utah or Oklahoma. So let's take Minnesota out of the equation. Let's compare Utah and Oklahoma's resumes. Oklahoma plays in a better conference. They have a better win. Baylor, a 10-1 team, previously unbeaten. Utah, again, their best win, a couple of 5-4 and four teams. Utah's loss came to USC with a backup quarterback. K-State has four losses. They're hovering right around that top 25 mark. USC has four losses. They're likely going to be somewhere in the 20 to 25 range tonight. It's not a huge spread between those two. And to me, the strength of schedule is going to give Oklahoma the advantage. Number eight. And then, of course, number eight is Utah. To me, they're just the worst or the least impressive of the contending one-loss teams. Who is their best win? Is it BYU? Is it Washington? They don't have a good win on their resume. They haven't beaten anybody. And they took that loss to USC with a backup quarterback, an 8-4 and four USC team that somehow is in the top 25. Number 9. At number 9, this one might be a little bit of a surprise too, but I'm going to go with Penn State. I say they only drop one spot after losing to Ohio State by 11 this weekend, mostly because who's going to pass them? They have a better resume than any of the other two lost teams that could catch them. They have a better resume than the team that I have at number 10. They've beaten Michigan. Wisconsin lost to Illinois. Those teams aren't going to jump them. Oregon losing to Arizona State this weekend. They're going to take a tumble. I have Oregon falling maybe around Baylor's level. But I'm going to go with Penn State at number 9 because of their quality wins. They've beaten two 
teams in the top 20, Michigan and Iowa. Their only loss is coming to two teams that I believe should be in the top six, Ohio State and Minnesota, by a combined two scores. Number 10. And then coming in at number 10, I've got the Florida Gators. I think they move up one spot in the rankings this week. I don't think they have the resume to jump Penn State. Each team has great losses. Those two could lead the country in great losses. Again, Penn State's coming to Ohio State and Minnesota, two teams I think should be in the top six. We know they'll be in the top ten. Florida's losses coming to LSU, the top-ranked team in the country, and Georgia, who's a top-four team. So the losses are pretty comparable. The wins is what separates us for me because Penn State has two wins over top 20 teams. Florida has one win over the top 25, the current top 25 field. So to me, Penn State having that extra quality win is going to keep them ahead of Florida. Those are my top 10 in the rankings this week. The college football playoff rankings will come out tonight let's take our last time out when we come back let's rank some nfl quarterbacks i'll give you my quarterback depth chart 12 weeks into the year next on espn up check out the up's live and local sports talk show the sports pen weekday afternoons at four on espn up and on the espn up app if you missed any of today's show get caught up on demand with our free mobile app from the apple i store google play or look up ESPNUP.com and get caught up there. Tanner Hoops with you. Glad that you're along this Tuesday afternoon. We prep for Turkey Day. We prep for the winter storm, the snowpocalypse. Well, let me get you set with what's been going on in the NFL today. I talked about it yesterday, how the Dallas Cowboys were victimized by a phantom tripping call. It negated a couple of key passes late, and the Cowboys would lose to New England by one score while playing in a monsoon. Well, the NFL reached out to the Cowboys today and said, you're right, we made a mistake, we own it. Our officials shouldn't have made that call. Well, it doesn't really help the Cowboys now, and who knows if it would have turned into anything. But it was frustrating for Dallas, and it was a bad day for New York, as in the booth reviews, those guys, not just in Foxborough where the Patriots and Cowboys were playing, but all across the NFL on Sunday. So the NFL did reach out to the Cowboys, admitted their mistake, admitted they were at fault with the phantom tripping call on Travis Frederick. Maybe that will assage Jerry Jones a little bit because he finally lashed out at his head coach, his guy, the guy that people have been clamoring for him to fire for about a decade now. And Jerry stuck with him longer than he did with Jimmy Johnson, Tom Landry. Jerry Jones finally shows his frustration with Jason Garrett. But again, we've got a long way to go. And uh, today, uh, uh, today and a couple of these other games, we, uh, uh, with uh, uh, the makeup of this team, uh, I shouldn't be this frustrated. Okay. He did what many Cowboy fans wanted him to do for a long time, and that was call out Jason Garrett, the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys. Put pressure on him. Let him know. Your job's on the line. Your seat's getting hot. But the thing is, Jerry picked the worst possible time to do it. This is a Cowboy team that played New England right down to the wire. A Cowboy team that's got all the talent, yet they haven't been able to put it together for whatever reason this year. And a New England team people are talking about as a Super Bowl contender, if not the favorite. They go into a monsoon. Your quarterback outplays Tom Brady 
and you give yourself a chance to win at the end of the game only for a phantom tripping call to deny you the opportunity. And now you choose to do this? That's what I don't get about Jerry Jones. You got a short week coming up. You got to take on an 8 and 3 Buffalo team with a really good defense and a quarterback who's playing much better, who's continuing to elevate his game. And you choose to do this, causes disruption in the locker room, call out your head coach, undermine his credibility. This is the time you choose to do that. Come on, Jerry. You're the owner and GM, and you're making it harder for yourself in both capacities. As an owner, you're making it harder for yourself as a GM. And as a GM, you're making it harder on yourself as an owner. Jerry can't stay out of his own way. And I love it. I love it because it gives us fodder, and it's typical Jerry. Never learns. Hey, let's switch to a little bit of baseball before I give you my quarterback rankings, my depth chart. 12 weeks into the season. I mentioned before the break that a presidential candidate has called out Rob Manfred, urging him to save minor league baseball. This weekend, it was announced what had been rumored for a few weeks now, that Major League Baseball was looking in to cutting ties with 42 minor league baseball teams. Now, it doesn't mean that they are going to disband those clubs or those clubs are going to cease operations. It just means that they will not be affiliated with major or minor league baseball going forward. Those clubs are still free to operate. Granted, they're going to have to find funding somewhere else, which a lot of them probably aren't going to be able to do, which means baseball in a lot of small towns, the Class A, maybe even AA level, is going to cease to exist. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders reached out to Rob Manfred earlier today, called out the commissioner of baseball on Twitter, and has sent him a letter urging him to reconsider Major League Baseball cutting ties with 42 minor league clubs. Here's the thing. Even though Major League Baseball may not support those clubs directly anymore, they can still operate as long as they find new affiliation, probably new sponsorships, and getting new cash flow, they can still operate. Is that going to happen for all 42? We know it's not. We know it's not. And I look at some of the names that are on that list, and those are some iconic teams, iconic ballparks, places that you might have a sentimental attachment to. I know I do with a few of those teams on that list. I know minor league baseball needs to be restructured. It does. But I'm hoping that cutting ties with 42 markets is not the answer. I hope that's not the case. But at the same time, Major League Baseball as an industry should not be forced to continue funding an operation where positive revenue is not being generated. That's where I want to keep the politics out of this. Because if you've got an operation that's costing you money, that's hurting you economically, you have no obligation to keep it going. That's why I want to see politics stay out of baseball. At the same time, I really want to see baseball continue at that small town level. I know it hasn't been economically fruitful in a lot of those communities. That's why I'm hoping that we can come to some kind of restructurement of the minor league and farm systems. It doesn't mean cutting ties with 42 teams, a fire sale of sorts, and it doesn't mean 
getting the government involved to force Major League Baseball to keep their connections with those teams. That's why I'm hoping that this is handled in-house and that Rob Manfred and the Minor League Baseball Union can come to some kind of mutual understanding. Hey, with that, let's start ranking some quarterbacks. Let me give you my quarterback depth chart 12 weeks into the year. Now, I've ranked all 32 NFL quarterbacks by division. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you my divisional list, and then I'm going to take the eight divisional winners. It's almost like a tournament of sorts. Here are my rankings for quarterbacks based on what they've done this season. Not an overall career body of work, but this season, division by division, these are my quarterback rankings. Let's start in the NFC West. I've got Russell Wilson, Kyler Murray, Jimmy Garoppolo, and then Jared Goff. In the AFC West, I'm going Pat Mahomes, Phillip Rivers, I put slightly ahead of Derek Carr, and Joe Flacco is still technically the starter in Denver. Brandon Allen probably wouldn't move much higher in that list. NFC North, I've got Aaron Rodgers. It's tough to put Stafford at number two because ordinarily I think he is the second best quarterback in that division, but we haven't seen a lot of him this year, and when we have seen him, he struggled with injury. So you could put Kirk Cousins at number two. Stafford, if he's healthy, I'll put him at number two ahead of Cousins. If not, I'll move Cousins up, and Jeff Driscoll and Mitch Trubisky can fight for the bottom two spots. AFC North. Lamar Jackson at number one. Same situation as Stafford. Where do you put Ben Roethlisberger? Do you go with somebody else here? Because Devlin Hodges was named their starter for this weekend earlier today. So if Roethlisberger is healthy and in the mix, he's probably at number two. I'd probably put Baker at number three and Andy Dalton at four just because we haven't seen a lot of Andy this year. Ryan Finley's been starting here the last couple of weeks. How about the NFC South? I've got Drew Brees, Matt Ryan, Kyle Allen, Jameis Winston. The AFC South, Deshaun Watson, Jacoby Brissett, Ryan Tannehill, and Nick Foles. We have seen two games and one quarter of Nick Foles in a Jaguar uniform this year, and he hasn't looked that good. Ryan Tannehill, though, has. How about the NFC East? I've got Dak Prescott at number one, followed by Carson Wentz, Daniel Jones, and Dwayne Haskins. And then the AFC East, Tom Brady, Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, and Ryan Fitzpatrick. So those are my divisional rankings for the NFL quarterbacks this season. So I'll take the eight winners, which would be Russell Wilson, Pat Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Lamar Jackson, Drew Brees, Deshaun Watson, Dak Prescott, and Tom Brady. And let's rank those eight. Let's rank the top eight. And again, this ranking is based only on production this season. Let's be dramatic this time, because there's some drama involved in this. Well, maybe there's not, because we know who the top two are going to be. Yeah, let's do what we did with college football. Let's start from the top, because Lamar Jackson just has been the best quarterback in football this year. He's rightfully the MVP frontrunner, followed by Russell Wilson. We don't need to spend a whole lot of time on those two. Lamar Jackson, followed by Russell Wilson. They have been the top two quarterbacks in the NFL this season. Again, this ranking is not based on an overall career, an overall body of work. This is based on this season. Here's where we can start to get a little drama. Ranking three through eight as far as the quarterbacks that I gave you, the ones that are the best in their division. And at number three, there's some debate here. I'm not saying that my list is written in stone or is written into law. 
This is up for debate, like anything in sports. But if I had to rank the top quarterbacks in the NFL this year, at number three, this might surprise some people, I'm going to go with Dak Prescott. I think Dak Prescott has put together the third best season of any quarterback in the NFL so far this year when you take into account his overall body of work. The fact that he's top five in three different categories. He's first in passing yards this year. He's third in quarterback rating. And he's tied for fourth in passing touchdowns. He's doing this with Jason Garrett as his head coach. And again, I'm not saying Dak is the third best quarterback in the league. Because again, he's a guy that you give him an elite offensive line, a great defense, a future Hall of Fame running back, and a good receiving core. Yeah, of course he's going to look good. Oh, and don't forget, future Hall of Fame tight end with Jason Witten and Blake Jarwin, who hasn't looked too bad. You give him all that, yeah, he's going to look pretty good. So I'm not saying that Dak is the third best quarterback in football. Don't get me wrong. But based on the numbers this season, I think there are only two quarterbacks who have put together a better year than Dak Prescott. Now, he has thrown 10 interceptions this year. That's the black eye on his resume, and that's where this is open to debate. But because he's still top five in the categories of passing yards, touchdowns, and QBR, tells me that he's still doing enough right. I'm going to put him at number three on my list. Number four, I'm going to go with Deshaun Watson. This season, he's passed for 2,899 yards. That's more than Rodgers. That's more than Mahomes, who I get has missed some time. That's more than Lamar Jackson. That's more than a lot of guys that are still on this list. How about passing touchdowns? Well, he's tied for sixth in the league with 20. That's also more than Mahomes, who again has missed some time. That's more than Rodgers. That's more than Brady. And his quarterback rating is still among the best in the league this year. So that's why Deshaun Watson, to me, is the fourth best quarterback. At least he's fourth in my depth chart 12 weeks into this season. Number five, I have Aaron Rodgers. You look at Rodgers' numbers, and I'll just go ahead and give you six. It's Pat Mahomes. Aaron and Pat have put up such similar numbers this year. Passing yards. Rodgers has passed for 2,822 yards. Pat Mahomes, who keep in mind missed some time, 2,808 yards, just 14 less yards than Aaron Rodgers. How about passing touchdowns? Mahomes in less time has one more passing TD than Rodgers, 19 to 18. But I think what breaks the tie for me and what is going to put Aaron over the top of Mahomes is the fact that Aaron hasn't missed time and they have the same number of interceptions. They're not interception prone, but Mahomes has thrown more in less time. That being said, you could flip 5-6. and six. I'm going to put Rodgers slightly ahead of Pat Mahomes for this season. Coming in at number 7, I'm going to go with Tom Brady. That means Drew Brees is number 8. Brees has missed some time this year. He's missed 5 games. He's already thrown as many interceptions as Brian Hoyer, Jeff Driscoll, and Case Keenum. Plus, this season, Brady has a better passer rating, more passing yards, more passing touchdowns. Now again, Brees has missed some time. He'll, he, he's going to get there. I'm not trying to take anything away from Drew Brees. But as of right now, there are seven other guys, at least, that I think have had better seasons than Mr. Brees. That's my list. That's my list for NFL quarterbacks on my depth chart. That's my quarterback depth chart 12 weeks into the year. Jackson, Wilson, Prescott, Watson, 
Rodgers, Mahomes, Brady, Breeze. And that's our show. With that, we're hitting the 5 o'clock hour. I appreciate you tuning in and hope you enjoy the show as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. It's going to be nasty out there tomorrow. Weather's going to get kind of dicey. Please be safe. Please enjoy your Thanksgiving. And it's my hope that you join me tomorrow, 4 Eastern, 3 Central. Signing off until then, I'm Tanner Hoops for ESPN, UPWZAM, Ishpeming Marquette.